Well, it's um, it's quite an honor to be up here, and I I want to thank David and Mark for asking me to speak. Um, you know, it, when you when you when they ask you to speak in chapel, um, I've never had this experience, but I look back on what I've learned at Masters, and I look back at the four years, and I've learned so much. Um, but what what I want to share with you this morning is one of the things that I think has been impressed on my heart the most. Um, but before I do that, uh, there's a couple people here that, that I'd just like to you guys all to recognize and say hi to. My mom and my grandparents are here, and they're right down here. And I, I'm not going to make them stand because they won't want to, and they'll be embarrassed. And my mom said she would be embarrassed and walk out if I made her stand. So um, <laughs> I won't make them do that, but thanks for coming. And, uh, yeah, you can come. And uh, just one more quick thank you. Uh, if you guys were here on homecoming, you, you saw the senior homecoming court, the males, uh, was three of the RAs in Waldock. Well, I felt slighted that I didn't get my chance to thank someone they all thanked. So I, I think Steve Miracle is here. So I'd like to thank him for helping me translate this passage from the Greek and just really find its true meaning. So I don't know where Steve is, but thanks, Steve. Yeah. Okay, I'll just, I'll just move on now. Um, if you guys would all pray with me, so uh, I know we just prayed, but I'm going to pray to calm my nerves a little bit. So let's bow our head and pray. Dear Father God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this chance I, I have to just do your work. And I, Father, I pray that, that I would be um, your instrument and that I would just move out of the way and, and that you would speak through me, Father. Give me the wisdom and the discernment to uh, rightly divide your word. Fathers, I feel there's such an important message in here, one that I've learned so much from, and I pray that you would give me the strength and the, just the wisdom to uh, handle it correctly. And Father God, as we prepare for this time, I pray that you would make it profitable and uh, just help it to go well. In your name I pray, amen. Um, I was speaking to Santa Clarita High School, Santa Clarita Christian High School, and I asked one of the guys, I said, what, what should I do? Give me some advice. And he said... Two things, Kevin. He said, keep it short and don't try and be funny. So expect those two things from me. Um, if any of you know me, you know that I, I really like basketball. And uh, as a result of liking basketball, I, I watch a lot of basketball. I come to all the games. I, um, I watch basketball on TV. I watch professional basketball, college basketball. I read about basketball in Sports Illustrated and in books. And I was reading one time about this guy. And uh, it's an older guy, probably. He doesn't play in the NBA now and hasn't played for a long time. But uh, it was talking of his determination. It was talking about what he did to prepare. As it started out, it said that when he was a kid, his father was a professional basketball player. And what he did was um, he would play his father one-on-one in the backyard. And so this is like a you know, sixth, seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth grader playing his father in, in bas- backyard basketball. And if any, any of you know that, you know you can't even beat your dad if, you know, he's a regular Joe when you're sixth grade. But this guy's dad was a professional basketball player, and he'd always play him and get just crushed. You know, his dad would beat him 10 to nothing and just, just work him. And uh, what happened was his mom was seeing this, and she saw that this was happening, and she said to the father, she said, you know what you need to do? You need to let your son win, and that's going to get him hooked on the game. Because the father's whole purpose was to get the son hooked on the game of basketball. And so he said, you, she, the mother said to the father, he said, you need to let your son win. And that way, his eyes will light up. He'll develop such a love for the game that you won't be able to get him away from it. So 
they go out after dinner one night. They're playing basketball. And uh, the father's winning, as usual. And he, he remembers what the mother said. And the mother's kind of watching from the kitchen window. And uh, maybe catches her eye, I don't know. Uh, and he's, he says, you know what? She's right. Now's the time. And so what, she, what he does is he starts to lose. Not obviously, but he starts to lose to his son. And, and the son, son beats him. And what happened from that point uh, made one of the greatest players in the, in the history of basketball. What happened was, this guy, and I have to read it because I don't remember all the things he did, he would, he would go outside when it was raining at night, similar to what's been doing the last couple of days. He would go outside on his goal, and uh, it was a mud floor, and he would dribble in the mud. So he would learn to dribble the basketball better. He would ride his bike two miles to and from town, dribbling the basketball while riding his bike so he could have control. He would um, go to the movie theater when no one was there in the summer, and he would sit on the, on the right side one half of the movie and dribble the basketball with his right hand, and on the left side of the theater with the, the second half of the movie and dribble with his left hand. Um, he would, before bed, he would go to bed, and he would, uh, he would sit in his bed and hold his basketball, laying down, and he would practice his shot, you know, uh, palms or tips of the fingers, uh, shot, follow through. And he would practice that. And he would practice it until he fell asleep. One time there's a story that, that a, a guy bet him that he couldn't keep a ball spinning on his fingers for an hour. And uh, he started to spin on his fingers. He knew he could do it. He started to spin on his fingers. And one of his fingers got raw. He'd move it to the next finger and to the next finger and to the next finger until all his fingers had been used. And then he started spinning it on his knuckles. This guy was incredible. And if any of you know who I'm talking about, it's uh, Pete Maravich. Became one of the greatest basketball players in the history of the NBA. Played for the, the Jazz when they were the New Orleans Jazz. He played for the Utah Jazz. He played for the Hawks. Played for the Celtics, which makes him a great player right there. Um, and this guy was the great, one of the greatest. I, I can't say the greatest, but he was one of the greatest. But the point is, where did he start out? I'll tell you where he started out. He started out losing to his dad 10 to nothing every time. You know why? Because he stunk. He was bad. But that's where he started. And look where he got to. And that directly relates to our passage this morning. Um, I'm going to have you guys do something that we don't normally do in chapel, but, but I thought, you know, I, I've studied this passage for quite a while now, um, and, and I've gained a lot of, I don't know, a, a lot of respect for it, a lot of, just it's meant a lot to me. So I'd appreciate it if you guys would, would stand while I read the passage. Um, and if you want to turn in your Bibles, I think that'd be great too. The passage is in 1 Corinthians, and it's in chapter 1, and it starts with verse 26. Um, and I'm reading from the NASB. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. It says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, in the, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And then on to chapter 2, and it says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, be seated. I already prayed, so. Um, let me kind of give you guys a road map of where we're going so you'll know 
when I'm getting close to the end. Um, first thing I'm going to talk about is in verses 26 through 29, I'm going to talk about the terms of God's election. And then in verses 30 and 31 of the first chapter, I'm going to talk about the transfer of Christ's redemption. And finally, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I want to talk about the truthfulness of our reaction. Um, Let me read that first section to you again. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are, that are not. That he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. And I put a little emphasis on that while I was reading it, and I hope you noticed. Um, the first thing that you should remember is consider your calling. Um, calling referring to election, and I believe firmly in that. And I think this passage just displays it. Did you notice God has chosen the wise? God has chosen, or... God has, uh, God has chosen the foolish, and God has chosen the weak, and God has chosen the base things. It's nothing we did, and you can see that uh, in verses like Romans, Romans 3, 10, and 11, where it says, uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. Or, or again in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sin- sinners, God demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's nothing we've done. We were elected. We were chosen by God, and I hope you guys would see that right off. Um, and then he moves on and he talks about who is chosen and who isn't, kind of the terms of, of God's election. And uh, you'll see a comparison. Uh, what happens is he says God has not chosen, first of all, and he says God has not chosen the wise, the mighty, or the noble. And then he comes back right back and tells us who God has chosen. And it's the foolish, the weak, and the base. God hasn't chosen the wise, but he has chosen the foolish. He hasn't chosen the mighty, but he has chosen the weak. And he hasn't chosen the noble, but he has chosen the base. And it's just a real, it's a real testimony to what God does. He takes us when we're nothing, when we're merely uh, foolishness in the world's sight, and he makes us wise, he makes us mighty, he makes us noble. Um, Let's look at wise, because uh, each of these things the world professes to know. The world professes to know who is wise. The world professes to know who is mighty and the world professes to know who is noble. But let's look at what God says, okay? Because remember, it's not the world's definition that counts because if you are wise, mighty, or noble according to the world's definition, you already have a disadvantage because God hasn't chosen many of those. Um, But God hasn't chosen the wise. Uh, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about the wise and the foolish man. It's, It's just the wisdom book and everyone knows it is the wisdom book. And uh, 60 times in Proverbs, he uses the word fool or foolish. And what I found was that um, when Proverbs describes the foolish man, it's probably similar to what what the world would say was a wise man. So listen to this. Um, The overriding principle I would find in Psalm 14.1 or Psalm 53.1, and it says this, both of those verses verses say the same thing. It says that God, or excuse me, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. It's kind of like, you know, what Dr. Noble was talking to, to us about the last week. Um, you see the secular humanism creeping in to the public schools, and what you see is the elimination of God. The elimination of God, the Bible, all those things are eliminated because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, who is, who is the fool? Who's doing that? Well, it's the people in education, the people set up in leadership, the wise according to the world, okay? And uh, that's the overriding principle. 
Now let's uh, look at who the fool is according to Proverbs. And I just, this isn't a complete list. By no means I don't, I don't pretend to have all the answer. But um, I found four categories that make up a fool. And uh, the first one is the fool avoids wisdom. And uh, there's just a ton of references for this. Um, the fool avoids wisdom. We look at uh, Proverbs 10, 8 and 10. It says It describes the fool as babbling. You know, the fool just babbles. Um, no real purpose to his talk. Uh, you look at Proverbs 12:5, and it says, "The fool's way, way is right in his own in his own eyes." You look at Proverbs 15:5, the uh, the fool despises discipline. Also, in it just reiterates this point in uh, Proverbs 18:2, Proverbs 23:9, Proverbs 24:7, Proverbs 26:12, and Proverbs 28:26 talks about how the fool thinks he has everything worked out. Kind of, he doesn't need God. He just avoids the wisdom of God. And uh, as I look at it, I see, I see the world and I see, you know what, that's exactly what the world is. The world's determined, you know what, we don't need God. We don't need, you know, the wisdom of God. We don't need, and they look down on us because they say, you are foolish for trusting in the wisdom of God. So that's the world's wise. First of all, the world's wise is God's fool and, God, and God's fool avoids wisdom. Secondly, the, the God's fool avoids caution. Um, Proverbs 14, sec, 6 says that uh, the fool is arrogant and careless. Okay? The fool is arrogant and careless. What does that mean? That means he doesn't, he doesn't have any concern for anyone else. Not only does he not have concern for the wisdom and the presence and the, and the relationship with God, but he doesn't have concern for anyone else. He does what's right in his own eyes. Again, reiterated there in Proverbs. In Proverbs 17, 26, it talks about that he eyes the ends of the earth. And I, I didn't know quite what that meant, so I, I kind of looked it up in some references. What does it mean that he eyes the ends of the earth? And what that means is that, that his eyes are on the future. His eyes are on what's going to happen, what could happen for him, not, not um, what is God's plan, okay? And in Proverbs 29.20, he says he's hasty in his words. He's hasty in his words. How many people do you know that, that just talk and they, they babble and... Um, just kind of go without without aim, you know. They don't they don't watch what they say. They don't think before they speak. That's God's fool. Okay. So not only um, does God's fool the world's wise. Not only does he avoid wisdom, he avoids caution. Next, he avoids peace. And in Proverbs twenty three and Proverbs twenty nine eleven, it it tells us how the fool seeks out a quarrel. He he's looking for a fight. He's looking to pick a fight, and he's looking to pick a fight with you. And uh, he loses his temper very easily. That one's real quick. But he avoids peace. Not only does he uh, avoid wisdom, avoid caution, and avoid peace, but fourthly, he avoids righteousness. He wants to get as far out of the way as he can of righteousness because he knows where that'll lead him. That'll lead him right to God. So the fool fool avoids righteousness. In Proverbs 10.18, it says he loves slander. And I like this one. In Proverbs 10.23, he said, Wickedness is like a sport to him. He likes to play at it. He loves wickedness. Okay, so he avoids righteousness. And that's who the fool is. The fool is a person who avoids wisdom, avoids caution, avoids peace, and avoids righteousness. And when we look at it, we see that that God has not chosen the wise according to the world, but he's chosen the world's fool. And um, I would submit to you that the world's wise is God's fool. And God can take the foolish according to the world and build him up to be wise. And we'll see that in a little bit, hopefully. 
The next one he says is, he says, but God has not chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, uh, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the thing which are strong. Or in verse 26, it describes him as mighty. So I thought about mighty, and I said, hmm, who would be described as mighty in, in the Bible? So I looked up mighty, the word mighty, and that one's used 23 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's the word for power. It's the word for great physical presence. And so I said, you know, I said, hmm, let's look up who that's referring to. Um, and I looked it up, and 16 times out of those 23 in the New Testament, it refers to deity. First, the deity. Christ or God is referred to as mighty. It's a great portion of them, but who are the rest of the references to the person who's mighty? Well, all the gospel references, except for one, are in reference to God or Christ. And the one that's not in reference to God or Christ in the gospel um, is in Luke 1.52, and it talks about where God destroys the mighty man. God destroys the mighty man. Obviously, this is a world's might, again, not God's might, because God wouldn't destroy his own might, but he would destroy the world's might. And that's what he just does. And that shows the might of the world. God destroys the mighty man. The man who's mighty according to the world. I thought that was interesting though. When we look at the Gospels, when we look at the life of Christ, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John portraying the life of Christ, um, what we see is that we see that, that, uh, that, that is, that's the story of Christ. That's Christ modeling to who we should be, who we should become. And in all of those references except for one, mighty refers to Christ and refers to God. It doesn't refer to anyone else. It's referring to Christ and God, who is our model, and who we should learn true might from. What about the other New Testament references in the rest of, rest of uh, the books beside the Gospel? Well, it's referring to heroes of the faith. Again, in all but one circumstance. It's referring to people like Moses and uh, Apollos, who was a great teacher of the Word, and Paul and the Apostles. And uh, in one case, the angels. So mighty refers to not only Christ. And, uh, and God in, in, the, in the Gospels. But it goes on, and those people who follow Christ, follow the example of Christ, and become spirit-filled individuals are referred to as mighty. And again, there's one exception, but the one exception is in Revelation 6.15, where it says the mighty man will face judgment. Okay? So if you get my pattern here, and, uh, and look, look down, you can guess what I'm going to say about the noble man. In verse 29, look at that. It says, um, God has chosen the things that are not to shame or to nullify the things that are. God uses people that the world sees as nothing, the, the, the people that the world sees as not mighty, not noble, not wise. He uses them to shame the people that the world says are wise, the people that the world says are mighty, and the people that the world says are noble. And he does that because their definition, the world's definition of wise, mighty, and noble is much different from God's. So if we move now to the noble, you're gonna, you can predict what I'm going to say. They, the world's definition of noble is not God's definition of noble. And that's exactly what we find. We look at people like, like Herod, who is nobility of the day. And, uh, and we say, well, you know, how did he fare? Well, he rejected John the Baptist and Christ. He said there, you know, he killed John the Baptist and he rejected Christ as, as, as just a babbler. That's who the world says is noble. Who else does the world say is noble? Well, we have a reference in, in, uh, in Matthew where it talks about the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Christ and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you must follow all the commandments. And he says, all these things I've done since my youth. And he's obviously very, a very powerful man, very influential. And Christ says, okay, 
Sell all you have and follow me. And what was his response? He left weeping because he couldn't do it. He could not do it. Why? Because he was the world's definition of nobility. He was not God's definition of nobility. And the final one is, as I think of many of the other leaders of the day, you know, uh, the emperors that came, especially uh, people like Nero. Nero was famous for his anti-Christian bias. He would slaughter Christians by the thousands. I don't know, maybe by the millions. Burn them at the stake, feed them to the lions. Again, he was the world's definition of nobility. But God says, but Paul, Paul writes in this passage, God has chosen the base things of the world. God has chosen those who are just normal, everyday people. And if you think about your salvation, and that's what I'm trying to get you to do. Were you ever wise? Were you ever mighty? Were you ever noble? Probably not. Probably not. I know I wasn't. I'm just a regular guy. And I just, I just wonder at what Christ has done through me. Nothing that I've done, I don't see why He chose me, but He has. And He can make me wise. He can make me mighty. And He can make me noble. Now, some of you, you know, might, might question, well, why? Why doesn't God use the wise? Why doesn't He use the mighty? Why doesn't He use the noble? The answer to that you can find in verse 29. I think this is a real key. I think that, uh, and you'll see it at the end, I hope to, to tie this in, but why doesn't He use those people? Simply because no man should boast for himself. It's, the verse says that, that no man should boast before God. We cannot take credit if Christ makes us great. Um, and he starts from nothing, which is essentially where he started. We can't take credit for that. It is all him. And uh, I heard this illustration, and it's, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard it, and so I'm going to paraphrase it, and uh, don't quote me on this, but there's two tribes in Africa, and, and well, there's two certain tribes, and the tradition in Africa is that, that when a young man wants to marry a young woman, what he does is he comes and he, he brings, he brings a, a, an offering to her father. And typically an offering would be uh, you know, a cow, a cow if she's, you know, okay, and two cows if she's pretty, you know, a good catch, and three cows if she's just excellent, or uh, four cows if she's anything like Janelle. And uh, so, and uh, what, what they do is they bring the cows and they say, you know what, I'm going to, I'll offer you three cows for your daughter and then I can marry her and, and we'll go off and live. And uh, that was happening in this one community. Uh, all these, all these girls were getting married and, and, uh, and this, the chief, or someone important in the tribe, I don't know if it was the chief, but he had a daughter, and she was just, let me think of how to say this. She was ugly. And uh, she, no one, you know, she was real quiet and, and, and just real antisocial, real ugly. So she wasn't really a prize. And, and the father's trying to think, you know, well, maybe I can just get a side of beef for it at least or something. But uh, what happened was this guy came from this other tribe. Like maybe a rival tribe, I'm not really sure. But he came and he said to the father, he said, um, you know, I want to marry your daughter. So the father's thinking, right, yeah, I got, got an offer. And he's thinking of how he can barter for maybe up to one cow. And, and he starts to barter with the guy, the guy who wants to marry his daughter. And the guy says, no, I don't, I don't want to barter with you. I want to offer you ten cows. And the people are going, what in the world? This guy's offering her ten cows. Does he know, has he seen her yet or what? You know? And uh, he offers the ten cows, the deal's complete. They get married. They go off to, to his tribe. They spend some time there. They come back. And uh, they come back. And the father comes out of his, you know, whatever, grass hut or whatever it is. And, uh, and he says, you know, he looks at, at his son-in-law and he looks at his daughter and he says, where have you taken my daughter? 
Because what had happened was, this guy had put so much worth in his daughter. He'd shown so much promise, shown so much that he believed in her, that she'd become beautiful. And she'd become, you know, a prize. A prize worth those ten cows. And I submit to you that that's exactly what um, Jesus Christ has done for us. He's made us worth the payment because of what he's done for us. And just like the young woman became beautiful, beautiful because of her husband's investment in her life, I think that we'll become worthwhile because of Christ's investment for us on the cross through his power. And so that's the terms of God's election. The terms of God's election. And I know I spent a long time on that one, so let's move on. Next one is in verses 30 through 31. Let me read you that. Um, it says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And uh, I just uh, said that this was the transfer of Christ's redemption, what Christ is going to do for us. Um, verse 30, it starts off and it says, by his doing. Okay? The emphasis there is on election again. It's not what we've done, but it's what Christ is about to do through us. Um, verse 30 again, it says, who became. Okay? Emphasis not on what we are going to become, but he became for us. And what did he become for us? What did he transfer to us? He transferred his redemption. And I think, and that's the last one listed. It says his wisdom from God and his righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But I think when you look at those four, you look at redemption. And what's redemption? Redemption is a releasing for ransom. Christ has released us from eternal death because of the shed blood on the cross. And what's he released us from? Well, he, I already said that. He released us from eternal death. But what does that result in? And I think it results in the other three things. So I took redemption first. Redemption is that release. Um, and it produces in us, it produces wisdom. The wisdom of Christ. Like we were talking about, I've already given you the background of, of who's foolish and who's wise. It produces us wisdom. Christ's wisdom shines through us. It produces righteousness. Um, the character, character or quality of being right or just, simply. It produces righteousness. And uh, that could be ne- never be done without Christ's redemption. Remember back to the beginning, and I shared the verse, Romans 3, 10 and 11, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's not going to happen until Christ chooses us, God chooses us, and redeems us to his own. And the third thing that, that I think is, is wrapped up in, in redemption is sanctification. And what's sanctification? I love sanctification. I love the thought of sanctification. It's us continuing to be more Christ-like. The definition in, uh, I think it was Vine's Dictionary, it was separation to God. It's becoming more like God. It's becoming drawing near to God. That whole idea of draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And again, that's just through Christ's redemption. It's through nothing that we've done um, because if it was anything we've done, it would just end up um, worthless. But Christ through us... And I told my mom I had a treat for her. My mom's a sixth grade Sunday school teacher at our church. And she, uh, every year, it never fails, she has this one story that she tells about me. So I thought I would tell it right now. And it, I think it kind of relates. Um, but the kids always come up to me afterwards and they go, we heard the story about the hammer. And, uh, and I kind of laugh and say, oh. And then they leave. But uh, <laughs> there was this one time, it was real little, it was a long time ago. And uh, we had this wooden coffee table in the living room. And my mom's working away, you know, preparing, preparing a gourmet delight. And, uh, and she, she comes out and the, the, the coffee table had been, had been hammered on, you know. And, 
and I'm the only one in the house besides her, and she knows she didn't do it. So she's, she kind of casually comes over to me. I mean, she tells me this story. I was like two, so I don't remember this. But she comes over to me and she said, Kevin, what happened? And being the quick-thinking little chap I was, I said, well, Mom, the hammer did it. And she tells that story every time, but I think that's true. Technically, I was right. The hammer, the hammer made the imprint on the coffee table. And today I could still argue that point with her. But uh, the hammer made the imprint on the coffee table. And I look at us. I look at us a lot like the hammer. Because y'all know we didn't do it. It was Christ through us. Just like it was me hammering the hammer on the coffee table. Christ is the one who empowers us to work the hammer. Okay, We are just the instrument. And uh, it's Christ working through us. We are not the power behind the wisdom, sanctification, and righteousness we are the hammer. Christ, through his redemption, is the power, the hand that powers the hammer. And again, you have to ask this question, the same question you asked at the end of the last section. You have to say, well, Kevin, that's great. That's great that Christ did that for us. But why? Why is that so important? Well, it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As opposed to verse 29 where it says, no man should boast before God. Instead of us boasting... Why should we, why should we uh, accept what Christ has done? Why has Christ given us those things? Why has he given us the redemption, the sanctification, the righteousness, and the wisdom? So we'll boast in him. Okay? And that's where our focus should be. We should boast in, in him. It's very obvious to me that until we get our focus off ourselves and uh, what we can do and put the focus on Christ and what he did for us and the work of redemption on the cross, we will never be able to have a proper life perspective. And that's really what I'm aiming at here, hopefully with you guys is, is showing you what it means to have a proper life perspective. So we've talked about the transfer of Christ's redemption and before that we talked about the terms of God's election. Now, um, I'm going to be a teacher. Uh, at least that's what I plan to be. Uh, I study math and I, I, I'm glad I waited to tell you that until here because I, I've never really studied the Bible in depth but this has been a good experience for me. But one of the things I realize is that when, when high schoolers learn math, they always, at the end, or during the middle, or in the most inopportune time, they always say, what? They ask what question? You guys know it. Right. <laughs> they ask, <laughs> let me clarify that for you. They ask, when are we ever going to use this? And here's the part where I get to tell you, when are we ever going to use this? Okay? We know that we're nothing. We know that we are uh, the weak, the foolish, and the base. And we know that Christ has worked through us to give us wisdom, sanctification, righteousness, and redemption. But what, is, what difference does that make? And I hope this is the part, you guys, this, is, this has been my favorite passage for a long time. And this is the part that is my favorite of the favorite. So I hope that you guys can, can stay with me and, and, and listen to this. Because this is, this is the part that just blows me away. Um, it says this in verse two, one and two, or chapter 2, 1 and 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. First of all, Paul talks about what he didn't come with. He didn't come with superiority of speech, wisdom, or he didn't come proclaiming to us the testimony of God. Why? Why is that bad? Why, why would it be bad for Paul to just come and say, you know, I have all the answers? I can tell you. I can tell you what, what you know, wisdom is. I can tell you what all these things are. Well, because the whole idea of the fool in Proverbs is that 
that we, the fool, thinks he knows everything. So Paul's saying, you know what, I, I didn't know everything. And again, that would promote the tendency for Paul to boast. But what he did do, what he did do is this. It says it in verse, verse 2. It says, what I did do is I, um, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So again, like I said, this is the so what part of the passage. So what? When are we ever going to use this? Well, our tendencies to boast in ourselves should be banished when we realize what Christ has done for us. And our tendency to boast in Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross for us should be moved to the forefront of our whole, our whole schema, if I can use that word, um, of our whole motivation for the things we do. Okay? So what should the truthfulness of our reaction be? What should the truthfulness of our reaction be? Our, our reaction should be to know Christ and Him crucified above all else. And I think that will give us a proper perspective. You know, you guys, I'm in, I'm in life fitness right now. I uh, saved it till the second semester of my senior year, I'm proud to say. And, um, and it's real easy for me to say, because I was, in high school I ran track, and it's real easy for me to say, you know what, uh, talking with my friends or people who may be impressed if I tell them this, you know, I ran track in high school, and I was good. It's real easy for me to say that. I mean, I hope I'm not that prideful, but I, it's real easy for me to say that. You know, I, I ran track in high school. I'm a track athlete. I uh, ran the 1,500 meters, the little 3,200 meters. But I'll tell you guys what. I, <laughs> we, uh, we had a little 12-minute run in my fitness the other day. And I'm four years removed from my high school track career. And let me tell you what. I struggle. And uh, it's real easy for me to say I'm a track athlete. But then when it comes time for me to go out and run for 12 minutes around, you know, this, this little, this little uh, block of street that we're in, uh, it becomes a real different story. What I do and what I say, probably there were a real, they had a real discrepancy in them. And I want to see us as Christians, as young believers, have no discrepancy between what we do and what we say. Because that's integrity. And as you all know, that's one of the master's distinctives. So if I, if I can bring it real down to a real practical level, what does this practically look like to know Christ and Him crucified? Well, I think it has I think it has three simple um, outpourings or results. Um, the first one is a heart of gratitude, and I'm not going to really go into this because I think Mark Severance covered it really well when he preached in chapel. Um, a heart of gratitude. We need to be thankful for what Christ did for us on the cross. It's only out of that heart of gratitude that, that our response is going to flow. Um, and you'll remember the story of the ten lepers in Luke 17, where ten lepers were healed by Jesus and only one came back. Well, we need to practice the practice of that one. We need to come back and continually be, say, say, be saying thanks to Christ for what he's done on, on the cross for us. So the first response is a heart of, of gratitude. And I think the second response is a heart of obedience. And this is, this is my big thing, you guys. I, I, um, I talk about it a lot with the guys on my wing, and I talk a lot about it with the, with the high schoolers in the youth group. I talk about a heart of obedience, because I think um, there's so many people out there today that are asking, what can I get away with? And I hate that question. I hate what can I get away with. I think the question we need to be asking is, how can I better glorify God in all that I'm doing? Well, what can I get away with? Can I listen to that music? Can I go to that movie? Can I read that? 
Can I participate in that activity? Can I have that attitude? Instead of, how can I glorify God? Or would that attitude that I'm, I'm displaying glorify God? Would that complaint that I have glorify God? Would that movie I go to glorify God? Would that music I listen to glorify God? And I think that's the real issue. And uh, no question about it, I think that's the heart of the issue. And uh, I'm glad Matt emphasized that last verse in, in When I Surveyed the Wonders Cross because that is my favorite hymn. And, and just let me, let me quote those words for you. When I, uh, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine. Our love demands my soul, my life, my all. We can't sell God short. We can't give Him anything less than, than our everything because that's what He's given us. I look at Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6, 8-12. And when Isaiah seen the glory of God, when he's seen the holiness and the beauty of God, and these angels flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is God, Lord God Almighty. What does Isaiah do? And in, in, in verses 8-12, through 12, um, it says that he says to God, he says, Here am I, send me. No, no reservations. No... Uh, no, no thought about it. No thought of what he can get away with or what he can do to please himself. Here am I, send me. That needs to be our response. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 um, talks about we need to walk in a, a manner worthy of the calling of which we were called. And Paul says that's the purpose of this exhortation. And that would be my verse for you guys. The purpose of my exhortation is that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you were called. We've talked about that calling. Now walk in a manner worthy of of the calling. Um, and, and obedience, again, is a total change. A total change. In Exodus 33, um, Moses asked God, he said, Lord, show me thy face. Show me thy glory. And God does that. He hides him in the cleft of the rock, if you'll remember. And God passes by and Moses is allowed to see the back of God. And that's intense. And what happens when he comes down? Well, when he comes down, the people are, are so... Moses' face is shining. Moses' face is, is shining from God's glory. And the people can't stand to look at him. And so they put a veil over his face. Why? Because he's seen God. It, sh- it should be a total change for us. So we need a heart of gratitude and a heart of obedience. And thirdly, a heart of love. Um, if, I, if I can uh, quote from the great musician, and I, um, Aaron Neville. Um, <laughs> Let's look at verse 2 in chapter 2. If I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You guys remember the Aaron Neville song? Well, I don't know much, but I know I love you. And uh, I just I just laughed. Because that's exactly what our attitude should be. You know what? God, Jesus, I don't know much, but I know I love you. And that's stated as the greatest command in Matthew 27, 37 through 40. Or 22, I'm sorry, 37 through 40. What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So these two things, a, uh, a heart of gratitude, a heart of obedience, and a heart of love, are the outpouring, are the truthfulness of our response. And we've looked at, we've looked at the terms of our election, of God's election of us, um, that we were nothing, really, according to the world standards. We weren't wise, we weren't mighty, we weren't noble. But God chose us anyway. In fact, his terms, his requirements, almost most of the time, are that we not be wise, mighty, or noble. And we've looked at the transfer of Christ's redemption. 
that, that Christ gave to us, His redemption and His sanctification and, and uh, His righteousness and His wisdom, that we can be used, we can be used through Him, through our weakness. And third, we looked at the truthfulness of our, our reaction, which includes um, a heart of gratitude, a heart of obedience, and a heart of love. If you guys think back to the beginning when I shared about Pistol Pete Maravich, uh, he was weak when he started. But kind of it, through encouragement and through, through working and through the skills that he was, were passed on through his father, a professional basketball player, he became one of the greatest basketball players. And a result of that, if you heard him talk ever, was that he loved the game. He loved the game of basketball. And he would do anything to serve it. And I think that's exactly how we should be. We should look at Christ's salvation of us and we should start to see that Christ is working through us and ask the question, remember the two questions, not what can I get away with, but how can I glorify God? How is what I'm going to do right now going to glorify God, bring God glory? And I think that's the question we really need to look at. And uh, I just hope that, that you guys will remember that. And especially you guys who are freshmen and sophomores, and I know I'm not that much older than you, but that's one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn in four years at Masters is what's my purpose? What's my aim? It's not, I mean, I know we're here to get a degree. And I know we're here to make lifelong friends. And I know we're here for that kind of stuff and to, you know, watch the Mustangs play basketball. But we're ultimately here to glorify God. And we need to consider why we do the things we do. Is it to glorify God or is it other? And if it's other, we need to get rid of it. Plain and simple. Anything you do, if it's not for the purpose of glorifying God, get rid of it in your life. I'm telling you that right now. That's the whole story. That is the whole purpose. So remember that question. How can I glorify God? Let's pray. Dear Father God, I thank you for this day and I thank you just for this word from from your book, from your Bible, Father, and just the, the power and the strength that comes with that word. And I I pray that we'll so adhere to this that our, our whole focus would be to glorify you. This has been a, just a great lesson for me in, in studying about this. And I pray that you would um, use my words, use my, my weakness like we were talking about just to convey the ideas that I've learned uh, to these guys out here in the... In the chapel. And I pray that you'll give us a good day now as we go and seek to glorify you in all we do. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.